Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Welcome to Books and Nachos, the Venganza Media Podcast about everything in print. It's your host, Stuart in L.A., back with you once again on Planet Arrakis. Now look, I've heard the rumors. Listeners have been speculating. Doom Books and Nachos is dead. I must have given up on it because it's been over a month since the last show. While I'm here to set the record straight, I am very committed to finishing my coverage of all six Frank Herbert Dune novels. I just got a little backed up. Uh, The workload was a little bit difficult to keep up over the holidays, and I'm sorry it it was a rough going, but I am back on track. I'm ready to soldier through Children of Dune the third novel in this series, and initially the conclusion of the series. That's how Frank Herbert planned it. And look, I was not the only one who abandoned my responsibilities and went MIA after Dune Messiah. So did our main character. Paul Atreides took an even more extreme sabbatical than me. I mean, I might have tacked on a couple extra weeks to my Christmas vacation, but he's going to march out of his Arakeen Palace and disappear in the desert without so much as a still suit or a bottle of water. Which is essentially committing suicide, right? I mean, yes, the weather conditions are improving on Arrakis. All of Paul's greening initiatives have resulted in more forgiving climate. But with extended exposure to the sand dunes, you're still going to dehydrate in a matter of hours, and that'll be the end of you, assuming the worms don't get to you first. And either way, that sounds like a very painful death. Months after reading Dune Messiah, I'm still shocked that Paul did it. I was prepared to follow this character through the entire six-book saga. And while there were clear signs that our mentat Emperor Paul Muad'Dib was depressed, I never thought he was someone who would let hardships get the better of him. After all, the 30-year-old ruler had been through so much already. Think of that Harkonnen coup. They murdered his father. They murdered his firstborn son. They divested him from his family fortune and from that massive spice mining operation that House Atreides had lawfully been given. Paul always rallied. By the end of Dune, he returned from the desert and deposed a corrupt emperor and made it seem like everything would be okay. Now, in the last two pages of the second novel, that same mercurial figure is throwing in the towel, just giving up on everything that he fought so hard to reclaim. And how can this be? Because he was the Kwisat Haderach, that genetically cultivated Superman created by the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood to see all possible futures and lead society to its best outcome. What caused a messiah to lose faith in himself and his destiny? Yes, it's true that Paul wore a heavy crown. His quick ascension to the highest ranks of intergalactic governance didn't sit well with many of the other great houses, who either remained loyal to the deposed Emperor Shaddam IV, 
or simply resented seeing Chome Spice production get hijacked by a teenager. And that meant that, yes, the new Mintat Emperor had to become embroiled in a very grueling 12-year holy war and watch all his followers become bloodthirsty zealots, moving planet to planet, committing countless acts of murder and suppression in his name. No one likes to have that much blood on their hands, but battle did seem to be drawing down. Most pockets of the universe had begrudgingly accepted Muad'Dib as their Dune Messiah. So, what's the problem? I mean, you won. I think there was trouble at home, though. I mean, prolonged warfare is not good in the long term for any politician's poll numbers. You'll remember that Paul won the fight at the end of Dune against Baron Harkonnen because he had recruited the native tribesmen of Arrakis, the Fremen, who were initially eager to help Paul regain his power. They believed that he was their Mahdi, that legend foretold of a man who would lead them out of the desert into new prosperity, and Paul was it. He had adopted the name Wadib, he had mounted a sandworm, he drank the water of life and survived, he started a family with Chani, the Fremen daughter of their revered ecologist Liet Kynes. But anyone that reads Machiavelli's The Prince will tell you the people that put you into power typically are not the people that keep you in power. Broken promises end up disappointing early adopters, and many Fremen, like Paul's right-hand man Stilgar, remained loyal 12 years into these crusades. But a growing number of maimed, disillusioned warriors felt they had gained nothing by sacrificing their lives for Muad'Dib. And a few of these jaded soldiers colluded to assassinate Paul by setting off an atomic explosion in a little village he was visiting. The Mentat Emperor survived, but his eyeballs were vaporized in the blast. For a while, Paul was able to still navigate his surroundings by using mystical powers to see, or at least mimic sight, but everything eventually faded to darkness after the death of Paul's wife Chani, who overdosed on spice while trying to deliver twins in a difficult childbirth. So clearly there's reasons to conclude that life isn't worth living. You're completely blind, you're battle-weary, you're carrying the weight of the universe on your shoulders, you're surrounded by disappointed followers, you yourself feel like your efforts to change the universe did more harm than good, you're mourning the death of the only woman you ever loved. Yet, I actually don't believe that any of these factors are what ultimately convinced Paul to walk off into the desert and become worm food. Now that I've taken some time to reflect on Dune Messiah, as well as read the next novel, Children of Dune, I've come to see Muad'Dib's dramatic book two exit as an act of love, intended to free himself in the universe from a dogmatic, predetermined future. Blindness taught Paul the parallels between his army's suppression of the other great houses and the way clairvoyant powers subjugated him. Because to know the future absolutely is to be trapped into that future absolutely. And Paul learned that the cruelest thing a leader could do was strip someone of their ability to chart their own destiny. It wouldn't matter how beneficial Paul's transformation of Arrakis's ecology and economy proved to be if these changes came at the expense of other civilizations' long-standing religious and cultural practices. Paul could no more ask a person to blindly follow Muad'Dib than he himself was willing to slavishly play out the disturbing visions of the future 
that appeared to him in dreams. So by choosing to die the way that he did, Paul Modib not only stood up for free will, he resurrected an ancient Fremen practice that he once ironically opposed and abolished. See, before Modib came into power, Fremen warriors were nomadic people that needed all of their senses to successfully live off the land. If a member of the tribe became blind, then they became an undue hardship to the rest of the tribe. And therefore, it was decreed by the tribal leaders, also known as Nabes, that all blind people must sacrifice themselves to Shai Halud, the Fremen name for the sandworms, which they worshipped as gods. You walk out there, or I guess you stumble, maybe they give you a cane, I'm not sure, but you, you take one for the team. You refuse to be the weakest link. All of that went away under Paul's reign. And while I suspect readers may initially agree with his assessment that this was a barbaric and outdated practice, particularly when sight can be so easily restored with robotic eye implants, we probably shouldn't be so quick to judge. Most folks in this future think of machines, cybernetic inventions, as a sin. This is a post-computer culture, and returning to a reliance on robotic technology would be seen as a sure path to enslavement down the road. Paul's endorsement of eye implants over ritualistic sacrifice is exactly the reason why some Fremen fans turned into traitors and set off that atomic bomb. So I've actually come to see beauty in the way Paul handled his own blindness. He opted to emulate previous generations' death march into that sand rather than compromise his soul with robotics. And, yeah, he admitted that his way wasn't necessarily the correct way. I guess I'm always impressed when the powerful can admit that they're wrong, instead of staunchly using their strength to deny their critics' satisfaction. It's also clear when you read Children of Dune that Paul was clearing a path for his kids to fulfill his responsibilities as the Kwisat Haderach, which makes me think that the Bene Gesserit might have been right all along. Society was not ready for a messiah when Paul was born. If you recall, the sisterhood had ordered Paul's mother Jessica to conceive of an Atreides daughter who would be married off to a Harkonnen, and their child would grow up to be the Kwisat Haderach. By choosing to have Paul instead of a daughter, Jessica created a revolution that was necessary, but also a generation too early. Now it falls to Paul's children to restore the balance, fix the mistakes Paul made as emperor, and face that vision of the future that he couldn't bear to enact. Which must be why Frank Herbert decided to call this sequel Children of Dune, and not Arrakis, which was the novel's working title for much of the five years he spent writing it. Like Paul, Herbert had stepped away from his space opera responsibilities uh, in the years after Dune Messiah. He wrote other things, and some of which were not science fiction, but by 1971, those first two Dune books had become touchstones for a large readership of college students and counterculture activists who treated them as manifestos on how to reclaim the planet from odious capitalistic polluters. Herbert hoped to deliver a final Dune novel that would satisfy this useful liberal fan base and, yes, continue the financial success that would prevent his need to return to a day job. And that's why I think Paul Atreides is not the hero of Children of Dune. 
because spoiler alert, he didn't actually die in his walk to the desert. Uh, he's just been laying low for the last nine years, and he's waiting to return to the capital city, Arakeen, so that he can preach against the evils of a religious order that he once led as Paul Mwadib. In many ways, I feel like this was Herbert's first mistake here. I wanted Paul to be the focus. He made sense after all of this time to bring events to a close. And it just didn't matter to me that he was no longer the brash teenager taking down Harkonnen tyranny like he was in the first Dune. But I have to remember the audience. By this point, Don't Trust Anyone Over 30 was a popular chant at political rallies and sit-ins. So I suppose a blind 39-year-old has-been is not the most relatable character for that anti-establishment readership. Arrakis became Children of Dune, and Paul's significance shifted towards his fraternal twin children, daughter Guyanima and second son Leto, as well as a long-lost second cousin named Faradin, who is off on another planet being groomed to take over as emperor. Children of Dune does pick up nine years after Paul Mwadib disappeared into the desert, yet during all this time, his throne has remained empty. Paul's son Leto is, of course, next in line to inherit the Imperium, but most folks are uncomfortable with the idea of bowing to a nine-year-old, so I guess they still watch Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor. They don't like the idea of a child ruler. In truth, Leto and Ghani both have brilliant minds. They're capable of doing anything that an adult can do, and I'll explain why that is in a bit, but... The point is, they're ready to do the job, but the rest of the universe is waiting for their next ruler to hit puberty. So that means Leto's Aunt Alia has had to create a regency council to govern in absentia. You know, poor Alia. I feel bad that I haven't even devoted much time to talk about her so far in these podcasts. She is a very important part of the Duneverse yet one that's easy to ignore because, you know, she's not Paul. (laughs) And no matter what this girl does in life, she's always going to be the Kwisette Haderach's kid sister. And it's really not fair that she gets dismissed in that way, particularly when you consider that the life she would have had had her mother obeyed the Bene Gesserit would have been remarkable. I mean, if there had been no Paul, Alia would be that daughter that would get hitched to hunky Harkonnen Fade. You'll remember Fade was Sting in that codpiece in the Lynch movie. She would have been the one to give birth to the Kwisette Haderach. The universe would have looked upon her with reverence, like an icon, like the Virgin Mary. But instead, they look at her as a repulsive mutant. Even her own mother will abandon her. Seriously, it's... It's ironic, the hypocrisy. Jessica spent all of June obsessing about the safety and survival of her dear son, Paul. So much so that she was willing to drink a dangerous spice elixir called the Water of Life to prove that she was the Reverend Mother of the Fremen. And she was pregnant with Alia when she took that drink. And while, yeah, it may have gotten her somewhere with the tribe, it also resulted in Alia being born prematurely. 
and with a freakishly oversized personality. Herbert calls Alia's condition preborn, meaning Alia has a fully developed understanding of her family history and of the entire cosmos before she's ever left the womb. I think this is actually one of the coolest concepts explored in Children of Dune. It's sort of a sci-fi spin on something I hazily remember from my Psych 101 class, Carl Jung's theory of the collective unconscious. Uh, basically, that famous 20th century psychoanalyst postulated that no one is born a clean slate, that our brains are a memory card that come preloaded with a standardized set of behaviors and symbols that get passed down generation to generation. And they go all the way back to caveman times. We're essentially acting on instinct, doing things that our great-great-great-great-great-grandmother is telling us to do or not to do. Now imagine a developing fetus who is loading up on these collective and conscious ideas, getting a big dose of spice, that consciousness-expanding drug everyone in the Duneverse is hooked on. Spice is going to amplify those ancestral voices, and they're going to go from being a subliminal chirp in the back of your head into a deafening roar. Imagine your entire lineage screaming in your ear, all day long about what you should be doing with your life. It's like a never-ending Thanksgiving dinner. And that is how Alia experiences every second of her day. So I get that Alia is going to be socially awkward. She is not looking to make small talk with you at a party. She has too many people in her life already. And I get that she'd be furious at her mother, who figured that since she has all of these relatives in her head, there's nothing that she could teach this infant. And so she abandoned her at the age of three, left Arrakis so that she could go back and live in comfort on planet Kaladin again. I even get that Alia would make a zombie a soulmate. Uh, <laughs> maybe you remember, it, it was a big subplot of Dune Messiah that uh, this swordsman, Duncan Idaho, got resurrected by the face dancer Seidel. And the idea was he would be given as a gift that would be the undoing of Paul. And it ended up being that he was actually a pretty good guy and loyal enough that Alia decided to put a ring on it. Yeah, she married this resurrected family hero. And yet, for all of this empathetic feeling I'm bringing to the character, Children of Dune is telling me that Alia is our main villain. Because she had no mother to talk to for the past 20 years, and because she's had the responsibility of running the government that her Kwisat Cataract brother abandoned, Alia decided that she needed some advice. She decided to seek counsel from some of those voices from her family tree. And so she began doing a lot of spice, lapsing into something called a spice trance, and it put her in contact with her dearly departed grandfather, the Baron Harkonnen, who you will definitely remember as the major villain of the first Dune book. Three-year-old Alia actually killed him with a poison thimble called a Gam Jabbar. Well, now he gets to stick it back at her by stoking her paranoia. He basically will get her to do all kinds of terrible things. He gets her to break her marital vows, and she gets her to foment dissent with the Fremen, and maybe even bring about the collapse of spice production. The Baron loves all of this because he always wanted House Atreides to fail. And 
everyone else is naturally worried that Alia is going to fail. Like the first Dune novel, Children of Dune begins with a test. Uh, we have another reverend mother to come and implement a test on Alia and the grandkids, Ganima and Leto. But this reverend mother is Jessica. That's right. She is actually leaving Caladan and coming back to Arrakis 20 years later. 20 years after her husband was killed, after she was thrown out of the palace, after she watched her son become a messiah that she, quite frankly, never believed he was a messiah, she's going to come back and evaluate the psychological state of her daughter and her grandkids. And it should be said that these twins are also pre-born. Their mother, Chani, did massive quantities of spice when she was pregnant with them to in order to ensure that she could give birth. Because, and this is sort of a little tangent here, but Chani was getting slipped contraceptives. Paul's other wife, his official wife, Princess Irulan, had been secretly trying to make Chani barren so that Paul would have no choice but go to her for his heir. And because Chani thought that she couldn't get pregnant, because she was eating contraceptives without knowing it, she just started doing a whole lot of spice to ensure her fertility, and basically, she ended up ODing on the drug and leaving the twins uh, with that same collective unconscious connection that Alia has. All right now, folks, this is where it gets really weird. If, if you followed me so far, we have, yeah, dead family tree members coming back into your mind and warping your thoughts and people ODing on spice. Well, Ganima, I'm, I'm actually going to call her Gani. That's her nickname. It's easier to say. Gani and Leto have been nominally raised during their nine years of life by the Fremen Stilgar, Paul's best friend, as well as Princess Irulan. But they've been getting a secret education from all of the rest of the people in their lineage. And I got to say, it's shocking. I'm no parent, and I guess I really have no idea how hard it is to navigate kids and talking about sex at such an early age, but I am ready to tear Stilgar and Irulan apart like a Jerry Springer audience for letting these twins play the parent game, a favorite pastime in which Ghani lets her nine-year-old prepubescent body be temporarily possessed by her mother Chani, and Leto is going to allow his nine-year-old prepubescent body to be temporarily possessed by Paul. Yes, Chani and Paul. Uh, Paul's not even dead, and somehow, confusingly, he's still able to be evoked in spiritual form. The spirits of their parents are going to possess these children, and the reader will witness two siblings trying to resist the urge to make out with one another, while they look at the world through their parents' lustful eyes. Doesn't that sound like a great game? I mean, I don't need to consult Dr. Spock, right? These kids need boundaries badly. You're grounded for, like, ever until you get married to different people. I don't want to see you guys playing this parent game. I am overjoyed that Grandma Jessica is coming back to Arrakis to set Ghani and Leto straight, until I realize that she's actually under orders by the Bene Gesserit to get these two hooked up. She actually wants the children to have an incestuous relationship. The witches think that two preborns mating 
will result in another Messiah. So, yikes! I mean, Herbert slips in here that this is a custom that goes back to ancient Egypt and the pharaohs, that cousins would often marry each other and have children, and maybe that's why they failed, right? I just, it's hard for me to see incest and inbreeding as the answer to any problems, but I'm having a real problem with what's going on in this household, but Jessica is signing off on it. She is proclaiming Ghani and Leto perfectly healthy, nothing wrong here, but that Alia, she's an abomination. That's actually the word she uses to describe her daughter. Alia is an abomination because she's hooked on spice and hanging out with Baron Harkonnen too much. So take her out. Again, you got to feel sorry for the way everyone is piling on this chick. And it's not just Alia getting criticized by a mother who couldn't be bothered to raise her for hanging out with the wrong people. Guess who's decided to blow in from the desert at the same time? Her infallible older brother, Paul. Although readers won't be sure that they're looking at the Messiah formerly known as Muad'Dib for several hundred pages. It's not conclusive. It's a rumor that's whispered for a while because no one is sure of this stranger's identity. Paul has decided to return as some fire and brimstone street preacher who hides his face behind a mask. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of signs to make you think it's Paul. He's blind like Paul. He's about Paul's age. He comes out of the sands that Paul disappeared in nine years ago. No one knows where this stranger came from. And he sure can't say anything nice about the way Alia has been running the show in Paul's absence. And, you know, he's kind of right about that. The Regency Council relies way too much on megachurch razzle-dazzle. Alia has clearly modeled the post-Paul pulpit to look like pre-Reformation Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, which was a bad time for them. That was when the papacy was selling indulgences and exploiting common folks' religious devotion for financial gain. I get that Arrakis needed a Martin Luther to come and nail a protest sign on Alia's door, but again I ask... Does Paul not share responsibility in this failure? Alia did her best to prop up a crumbling empire while those who founded the movement walked away to focus on themselves. If the onus of keeping this social order and spice production running smoothly drove Alia over the edge, well, that just makes me feel sad for her, not enraged. Strangely, Frank Herbert writes Alia as the second coming of Baron Harkonnen. She's evil. She's the catalyst for our real heroes to run away. That we are to focus instead and love Leto and Ghani. I only wish I could. I wish I could get engaged with Leto's quest to follow this mythical golden path uh, that he keeps seeing in a dream. It was what Paul originally saw in his dreams and drove him into desert exile back in the second Dune book. Well, now Leto is having those visions too, and the main thrust of the story is him completing the journey that Paul didn't dare take. Yet with all their eccentricities and incest fantasies, I really find it difficult to think of these Children of Dunes as characters I can trust to do the responsible thing. And you know, I think Frank Herbert struggled with this as well. I think he had trouble seeing these children as heroes. I mean, he knew in his mind, this 50-year-old author knew that it was in his financial interest to write a story that flatters the hippie generation. And I think his West Coast 
unorthodox upbringing put them in alignment with many of their political views, like on the issues of ecology. But I also read Dreamer of Dune, which is son Frank Herbert's personal biography of his father. And that really showed that Frank was having a bad relationship with both of his sons during this period. And I can't help seeing this parent-child animosity bleeding over into these children's characterizations. I feel like Frank Herbert wanted to get his anger at his children out on the page and work through it on the page. For example, one of the many subplots of Children of Dune involves a Princess Wincissia, sister of Paul's wife Irulan, daughter of deposed Emperor Shaddam IV, mother of Faradin, a boy who will be next in line to inherit the throne should something bad happen to Paul's son Leto. And when Sissia is constantly pushing Faradin to toughen up, to become a killer, that she is going to ensure that Leto gets killed and that he needs to be ready to be the tough emperor that her father was. And so she's raising him on Seleucus Secundus, which was the planet where the emperor's fiercest warriors were forged. And yet none of this is working because the child has proved too sensitive, really, to to hold a spear. He, he doesn't have the killer instinct. He's more interested, actually, in the womanly ways of the Bene Gesserit and being engaged with Ghani. I have to believe that Frank Herbert uh, was using this storyline to work through real-life struggle with younger son, Bruce, who had recently come out to his family as gay. Brian Herbert's biography characterized Frank's views on homosexuality as overwhelmingly negative. It was really hard for him to accept this in his son. And I think we can also read that into some of the Duneverse's numerous villains, which are gay or gender fluid, like the Baron or Seidel. And so it's kind of interesting to contemplate. Is Veridin going to be characterized like them? Should we think of him as a villain? Should we just think of him as weak and disappointing? Or will he surprise us? Is this someone that deserves to be the next emperor? And in spite of his mother's behind-the-scenes treachery, will prove to be the real hero? I don't know how to feel about Faradin, and in, in some ways, that's good. I'm constantly surprised by this novel. But in other ways, it is frustrating not to have a, a clear-cut person to project yourself into. and. Another conflict going on in Frank Herbert's life that Brian Herbert wrote about in Dreamer of Dune involved him, that he had chosen to stop speaking to his father during this novel's creation. He was angry that his stern father had shown him so little love over the years and had prioritized writing over spending time with his children. And I definitely see that conflict here. I mean, you have the absentee dead Paul and this little Leto who has this psychic back-and-forth dialogue with him. They may never get a face-to-face -face meeting, but they keep working through, am I going to follow in your footsteps? Who are you? You know, it's interesting in that way. I do feel like much of Children of Dune, while I'm unsure about where to place my allegiance, I'm fascinated about how Herbert is going to bring it all to a close and what these characters mean to him. Do I want Leto and Paul to kiss and make up? Should I 
want to see Arakine destroyed by the sandstorms that Paul keeps wearing are coming? Do I side with Stilgar's anger that society has become too wasteful with water? Or does this crotchety old guy just need to stop being so militant about conservation? Do I want to see Lady Jessica mentor Faridin in the weirding way when she could be helping her own daughter battle the demons in her mind? There's not much opportunity to feel passion in Children of Dune, but I can honestly say I'm never bored. There is a lot that I'm just trying to understand. There's so much that's surprising and confusing and unconventional that pulls me through. This third book is never as compelling as the original Dune. But maybe it does strike a better balance between action and political intrigue than the talky, conspiratorially-minded Dune Messiah. I still like the second book better, but I recognize that it really was very little going on in that story. Here we get a lot of exciting stuff, page after page. Ghani and Leto are hunted down by lions, and Jessica survives an assassination attempt only to get kidnapped by Duncan Idaho. You feel things are happening and not just being discussed. And it all builds up to an ending that I am having difficulty even tackling. You'll forgive the pun, but Frank Herbert really opens a big can of worms in his attempt to complete Leto's golden path to a utopian future. I'll admit, another reason why I had trouble getting this review out, recording this show, was I just didn't know how to describe what happens in the last 50 pages of Children of Dune. And you know what? I'm not going to describe what happens in the last 50 pages of Dune. I want you to read it. Read it for yourself. Come to the forums. Come to Facebook. You tell me if your jaw hit the floor. I know mine did. All I'll say at this point is that the ending represents a theme of evolution and that Leto evolves into something I did not see coming and something that will be the entire focus of the next book, God Emperor of Dune. And I do promise we will talk about this ending next time when I read and review God Emperor of Dune. Preview of my thoughts, I've read a little over half of it and it might be my favorite book in the series since the original. It certainly takes the story in an exciting new direction. And you have my word that it's not going to take me another month to get that podcast out to you. Keep reading, and I'm going to keep reading. Keep listening, and I'll be back with you real soon. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, provided by podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Children of Doom. Children of Doom.